0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area.
1: If you'll open your Bibles now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Our subject today is the great and terrible day of the Lord. The prophet Joel wrote of this day to unprepared people as he warned them. He said, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty, it shall come. In the second chapter, he said, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter spoke of the day and referenced part of Joel's prophecy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Paul, in his sermon on Mars Hill, said to his listeners, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. The common theme that runs through those passages is judgment. That the day of the Lord is a day of wrath and of judgment. Peter and Paul's sermons were to unbelievers. Peter was preaching to the Jews at Pentecost. Only weeks earlier they had crucified Christ. Paul preached to Gentiles, to pagans that had never heard of Christ. But the message is the same for all people, that there is a day of judgment coming in which God will pour out his wrath on the wickedness of this world and he will settle all accounts against the violations of his holy law. God will judge the world by Jesus Christ. And I find it very interesting that Judgment was a talking point by both Peter and Paul in their gospel messages. And I think it's rare that we find that today, that hardly anybody uses this approach in soul winning. It's popular to begin with something like, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Whereas both Peter and Paul began their presentations with judgment. God has a terrible plan for your life if you don't believe. So both said that you'd better repent and you better believe... ...because a day of wrath is coming in which you will not escape. And our text here in First Thessalonians says the same. But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you... ...for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety... Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. He says sudden destruction comes upon them, and they will not escape. And the question is, who will not escape? And the answer to that question is unbelievers, Christ rejectors, those who choose to go their own way and refuse to submit to the righteousness of God. Romans says that they are hostile to God. This text says that no one will escape who doesn't bow his knee to King Jesus. Well, folks, I know that's a very difficult way to begin a Sunday morning sermon. That, that's not usually what you expect to hear on, on Sunday morning, but this is the method of Christ, and this is the method of his apostles, and it's foolish to think that we can improve upon the way they presented the gospel to people. Now, in the past few weeks, I've spent much time describing what the day of the Lord will be like, We've seen that it's a time of tribulation across the entire world. We've talked about the increasing calamities compared by Paul in this text to a woman who is experiencing birth pains. The calamities include terrible apostasy, the rise of false Christ. There is global conflicts. There, there is starvation. It's a time characterized by earthquakes and natural, other natural disasters. And in fact, the entire landscape of the world will be changed in that time and billions of people will die. This is the time of the rise of the devil's right-hand man. That is the Antichrist. He will rule the world. He will unite all nations against one little nation. He unites them all against Israel. But God promises that salvation will come to his witnesses, to Israel, and that just makes the persecution of the Antichrist more intense against them. We also learned in the message last week that before the end comes, the gospel will be heard by the entire world. By, by a method that's never been used in all of human history, all people, all kindreds, all tongues, all ethnicities, people in every part of the world will simultaneously hear and see an angel as he preaches the everlasting gospel of Christ. That gospel is the saving gospel of God, but at the same time we learn that it's a condemning gospel. That although people are condemned by their natural depravity... All people are not condemned for the sin of rejecting the gospel. That's because all have not heard the gospel. Our statement of faith says very clearly that voluntary rejection of the gospel involves the person in aggravated condemnation. Uh, That's an interesting term, aggravated condemnation. It's not just being condemned because you are a sinner who generally sins, but aggravated condemnation is when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and you refuse to believe it. You refuse to submit to it. That's a worse condemnation than those who haven't heard. Now the gospel will be preached so that all will hear and all who reject will be an aggravated condemnation. And Jesus said after that happens, then the end will come. He intends to close the door on the world as it is now and he will engage Satan and the Antichrist, all of their demons and all their human followers In a devastating, devastating battle. All of you have heard of that battle before. It's the battle of Armageddon. Comes at the end before the kingdom. And the Bible describes a carnage in this battle that that is so, so horrible that there is a river of blood that flows from that battlefield for the distance of 200 miles. There are that many people that are involved in this battle. And through the victory in this battle, God will restore the kingdom to Israel. And so a righteous kingdom, the righteous kingdom of Jesus Christ, will then extend across the entire world. Now our study today brings us to that point. That included in the great and terrible day of the Lord is the establishment of Christ's perfectly righteous kingdom. Uh, you, you might ask, well why will the establishment of Christ's kingdom be A terrible day. Well, it'll be a terrible day in the way that it comes in. The way that the kingdom comes is terrible. And the way that it goes out is terrible. Now, in between those two times, it's a blessed paradise for God's people. But in the kingdom, there are also lost sinners. Now, remember... Paul writes in the scriptures that the natural mind, the natural heart is an enemy of God. It's enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. And there is nothing as maddening and uncomfortable for a lost sinner than to be forced to live under a righteous government. And so for all the king's benevolence in the kingdom, for all the good things that he does, the world continues to hate his ways. The world hates his judgments. The world hates everything there is about God. This is a kingdom that lasts for 1,000 years, and it will be 1,000 years of misery for unbelievers. So I want you to understand that from every angle, there is no peace and safety for the unbeliever. Paul says here in our text that they will say peace and safety, but here's one thousand years where there's never a war, where there's never a problem for the people of God, and yet there is no peace and safety for those that are unbelievers. You never reach a peace of peace and safety if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. Your safety is always in jeopardy because the wrath of God abides on you. And that wrath is never removed according to the word of God, until people are reconciled. And in this kingdom, those who are unbelievers will never be reconciled. You know, sometimes people are fooled by reprieves. When they don't see God act, they don't think that God will act. When they don't see destruction come because of sin, and when things continue as they always did, they really don't believe that destruction will come. That God's really not interested in judging people. But we'll find out differently as we look in the Word of God. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter describes this mindset and he pinpoints what happens to the world when it becomes complacent. And when everybody says peace and safety, nothing's going to happen because God never did anything, then he just reminds them that they don't understand God's timing. So he writes in 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse number 3, Knowing this first... That there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished." But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish." But that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also. And the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now people don't see immediate destruction. So they don't think that it will happen. Everything is just fine. Everything will work out. So there's no need for alarm. And what Peter said is, these are people that are ignorant of the days of creation. At the beginning, and you see it in Genesis chapter 1, it says that the earth was without form and void, and what God did was to divide the waters of the firmament, the waters that were above from the waters that were beneath. And then, many, many years after that, when no one expected it, When in the days of Noah that people went about their business and they sinned as they wanted to sin, they sinned with impunity thinking God would do nothing. When they rejected God's preacher of righteousness, old Noah, then God unleashed those waters that he put above and he broke up the fountains of the deep that were beneath and he destroyed the entire world in a flood. Peter says in that text, "It said, you'll see, you'll see that the Lord will come just like that, like a thief in the night when you least expect it. Then he'll come with judgment. And he says, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Oh, he's just telling us that scientists had the timing of the big bang wrong. They were looking for it at the beginning. God says it comes at the end. The heavens pass away with a great noise and the elements melt with fervent heat. And what I'm trying to show you is that the millennial kingdom comes in with a terrible war. That's the battle of Armageddon. And the kingdom goes out with another war and the destruction of the world in this great conflagration where all the elements melt in fervent heat. These are all events that that are considered in our next subject in this part of our series and that is the day of the Lord, looking at point number five, we're looking at the climax of the day, the climax of the day of the Lord. Now, we've discussed the certainty of the day. We've talked about the uncertainty of the day. We spoke of characteristics of the day and calamities of the day. Now we move into the climax of the day. Now, in verse number one of our text, Paul said, I have no need to write unto you about the times and the seasons. Now, the reason you remember that Paul didn't write about it was because he explained all of this in person when he visited Thessalonica. When he founded the church there, he went into the Old Testament text and he read them all of these things that we have been discussing and he told them about the coming kingdom of Christ. Now the Old Testament is literally filled with information about the day of the Lord, and much of it is about this part. There's all those calamities that we've talked about, but there's also a great deal that has to do with this part, and that is the glorious kingdom of Christ. Whenever you read in the Old Testament that there is judgment coming on Israel. When we just read in Isaiah chapter 59 about Israel's sins that needed to be repented of. When they were in punishment in the captivities. Always following that when they've lost their kingdom. All of that, it always leads to the promise of a contemporary deliverance at that time. And then we're springboarded into the future where there's the promise of the coming kingdom that will encompass the world. Now, Paul used those types of texts to teach the church about the kingdom. He'd already told them about this before, so he didn't need to go into it here. All that he does is to remind them, and then he used this information as an incentive to prepare them for what comes next. And I mean verses 4 down through the end of the chapter, what comes next. That's how we are supposed to live in light of Christ's coming. So they knew about it, they heard about it, the great apostle had taught them, but some of you haven't heard about it. Some of you don't know the details. Some of you do, but you need to be reminded. And so we're using this text as our own springboard to explain those things that Paul left out. We've covered the birth pangs that lead to the kingdom. And now we come to the arrival of the king of this kingdom. Now, let me remind you that the second coming of Christ is much bigger ...than the rapture. Now, people think about the rapture... ...and to them that's, that's the summation... ...that's it, that's, that's the second coming of Christ... ...but the Bible presents a much, much bigger picture... ...than just the rapture. In fact, the separation of these two subjects... ...in chapters 4 and 5... ...shows that the rapture is preliminary... ...that it's a prelude. It's very vital to the story, of course... ...but it stands somewhat outside... ...of the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the kick-off of the events but it stands apart as a preliminary phase. And we say this because we don't believe that the church is going to be present to see the great and terrible day of the Lord. The church will be taken out of the world, so there won't be any of the church that's in their physical bodies at that time, so they'll not go through it. Now, when you read of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, never is the rapture mentioned The church age isn't considered there, so we wouldn't expect that we would read of the rapture of the church in the Old Testament. And the same is reflected in Paul's method here, that first he speaks of the rapture in chapter 4, something they didn't know very much about at all, and then he moves into the day of the Lord, the aftermath of the rapture in chapter 5. Now, we've been talking about the main events of the second coming, the birth pangs that come after the rapture, And so the day of the Lord is now moving very quickly. And in a period of seven years, this earth is purged of Satan and the Antichrist through tribulation. And then when that tribulation is over, the glorious kingdom of Christ is ready to begin. tribulation is the worst of times. Worst the world has ever seen. Jesus said, there's no time like it. The Holy Spirit who works today to restrain Evil in the world is not going to work that way at that time. He won't be in the world to restrain evil as he does right now. The reason that people don't live down to the very depths of their depravity and do the very worst that they can do is because God protects the world from it. God protects the world because of his people. And if you think that things are bad now, then you just wait to see what happens when God removes, when he removes all the restraints and he just lets people go and do whatever they want, anytime that they want, whatever they choose. You know, we hear today a lot of talk about how that people are basically good. Have you heard that? People are just really deep down on the inside. They're just good people. Well, God's going to prove that's not true when he lets the imagination of the evil heart run wild, we'll see how good the heart is. I mean, the scriptures aren't foolish when they say things like, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible teaches that people are actively, positively inclined to evil. The only bare semblance of anything good that you find in this world is because God's people are in this world. God has his elect in the world... And so whatever benefits the world receives from God is because of the overflow of the blessings on His people. And thus the Word of God says, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. But you let God withhold His power for righteousness, then let's see if anybody in the world is basically good. Let's see if there's anybody who has the power in him to come to God. can't happen and it won't happen. Now just just weeks ago... When New York's Governor Cuomo signed a Senate bill allowing the murder of babies up to the day they're born, he gave us an example of the cruel, sickening, disgusting, barbaric, anti-humanitarian heart of man. What do we discover about people? They're cold-blooded killers. Just like Cain in the very beginning, cold-blooded killers. Paul said men will be lovers of themselves. In other words, you'll hear hear this argument and you hear it all the time. It's my body. I'll just do what I want with my body. It belongs to me. I can do whatever I want. And so if it means killing my baby, I'll kill my baby. Because it's about me. It's not about the baby. Or I'll do this. My aged parents that I'm tired of taking care of, I'll just give them a shot. I'll kill them too. Because it's about me. That's too much trouble for me. I choose to do that. So what I'm going to do, I will protect my interest. And if killing the most innocent is necessary, so be it. This is about me. Folks, you see, that's typical of the human heart. That's what's in the basically good human heart. The basic good of humanity is no good at all. So what do they do? They protect salamanders. And they protect birds under bridges. And they kill babies. That's what happens to the sick, twisted mind of the spiritually and morally bankrupt. Now, in those days, the evil that you see now will be raised exponentially to the tenth power. Then, after seeing it and allowing it and proving this, and then after giving them the, elever- the everlasting gospel to those that hate it, finally God says, That's enough. Then he says, He's, he's ready to pull the plug. The world has shown its worst depravity. It fills the cup to overflowing. Then it's time for the Son of God to step in and squash it. It's time to stop it all. And so the kingdom comes in a violent beginning. It's a great and terrible day. Now, we're going to look at that. We'll we'll start looking at that today. The kingdom will be ushered in by the return of the king. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to establish a kingdom. Now, the king has been away, except for the protection of his witnesses and to preserve a remnant of believers. He lets Satan, the prince and power of the air, have his way. But no more. Now he's set to return. This is not the rapture. Remember that. We're not talking about the rapture here. We're talking about the coming of the kingdom. Now, if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 19, there's much confusion about the return of Christ. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things and and neither do I want you to be ignorant and confused about them. So we'll continue our discussion of the end times as we look at the return of the king. I want you to make sure that you you put a marker in your Bible at Revelation 19 because we'll be in and out of this text back and forth. So keep uh, keep this text before you. Put a finger there after we're done reading. Revelation 19 beginning at verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened... And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These six verses are the climax of John's revelation of Jesus Christ. In the previous chapters, the Apostle described in detail the unfolding events that bring about the establishment of Christ's kingdom these things that were foretold by prophets in the old testament the deep spiral of humanity into sin goes goes back to the to the beginning and the qualifying event of depravity that's found in Genesis chapter 3 and there lucifer who had rebelled in heaven brought his rebellion to the earth and what he did Lucifer who is Satan tempted Eve in the garden and Eve took the bait and she took the bite and then she invited her husband to join the rebellion sin has multiplying devastating effects one one sin doesn't go alone these things come in bunches and one sin leads to another and sin leads to lies and cover up same modus operandi of men and governments today And so within the first generation, that first sin of Adam led to the first murder. Cain killed Abel and now humanity was dead set in its course. Sin multiplied exceedingly during the days of Noah when the heart of man was mired in continual wickedness. We read that in the forum class this morning. The heart of man did only evil continually. And so in the entire world, there was so much wickedness that God found only eight righteous souls. That was Noah and his family. And so God destroyed the world and saved Noah and his family. But you know, there's something about Noah. Noah was still a sinner. So when Noah got off the ark, he planted a vineyard and he got drunk. Do you need much more proof of the wine industry's value? Noah planted a vineyard and got drunk. Noah's children were also sinners. Now, very possibly, there was an act of homosexuality that came out of his drunkenness. And it wasn't long afterwards that there was the first overt sin of idolatry. You don't go very long until you get to Genesis chapter 11, where men built a tower, and they built an image to replace God, and then the world was back on its course for God to destroy it again. And since that time, the evil has been building... God wasn't ready to destroy the world again, not yet, and so we read in Genesis 11 that he dispersed the nations by confusing their language. And what did that do? Well, it made sin spread all over the world, the entire world, like a raging cancer. Now, those two events, the increasing wickedness before the flood and increasing wickedness after the flood, proved the spiritual condition of man. The man continues to get worse and so it goes. The righteous, perfect son of God came into this world and what did they do? They crucified him. And so what you have then in the Bible is the unfolding drama of the way that God intends to deal with evil. And the question is, who is evil? And the Bible answers the question, everybody. Everybody is evil. In the first advent, Christ came to redeem and to provide a way of salvation, to bring us out of that evil mindset and and attitude that we have. That's why we need a Savior. We don't need a Savior because we're good people. We need a Savior because we're sinners. And that's what Christ came to die for. And the way of salvation paves the path for the second coming of Christ in which he will eliminate those who don't avail themselves of the way that he provided And this second coming of Christ is an old, old story. It's in the prophecies of the Old Testament. Right along side by side with the first advent when they said there is a Messiah coming. There, There is a Savior that's coming into the world. Right in the same passages we find them mentioning the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to take the last few minutes that we have to show you that the the second advent of Christ was anticipated just as much as the first. The, the return of Christ is a prophetic event, and this is this is why Paul could, could take them to the Old Testament and and show them the second coming of Christ. This is what he showed to the Thessalonians. Now places where Paul would go to explain, well he'd go back to the very beginning, to Genesis three fifteen. And there we have the bruised head and the bruised heel. The prophecy of the bruised head and the bruised heel. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman. This is God speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. A prophecy that I want you to seize in the last part of the verse. God spoke to Satan. He said, it shall bruise thy head. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Who is it? Well, it's the seed of the woman. It's not really an it at all. It's a capital H-E. He, the virgin-born seed of the woman, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, the second part of the prophecy is about the first advent, that Satan would bruise the heel of Christ. He would deliver a blow at the cross, and although Christ would die by the design of the Father, the blow wouldn't be fatal. Christ would die, for sure, but then he would arise... And in his resurrection, God put the seal of approval. God the Father put the seal of approval on the work that Christ did in sacrificing himself for sin. It was a seal that said that death has been conquered. Christ arose from the grave, and that tells us death has been conquered, and death is actually the domain of Satan's kingdom. Jesus arose to conquer sin, and so to finalize it, Satan must be destroyed forever. Satan only bruised the heel. The heel is not fatal. But the word of God says that Christ will bruise Satan's head. He will crush Satan's head. And that happens in the second advent. And this happens when Christ comes to conquer, when he's riding on that white horse, and he will deliver the fatal crushing blow to Satan's head. So already within 1,500 words of the very beginning of the Bible, the second coming of Jesus Christ in the kingdom is assured. Well, there are many of these prophecies throughout the Old Testament. I don't have time to go through them all. I just want to show you a few. If we look at the second prophecy in in chronological order, it's the prophecy of Enoch. Just seven generations from Adam, Enoch was a righteous man and he walked with God. And prophesied of the second coming. Well, God gave his prophecy to him because he was close to God. God took him to heaven without dying. A marvelous prophecy. Jude tells us about it in Jude verses 14 and 15. And this is the prophecy of the tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Jude 14, verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, I wish I had time just to discuss with you how did Jude know about this prophecy? You can't read it in the Old Testament. It's not there. He just tells us that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied this. So how did he get that? Well, I'm not going to take time To discuss all of that. But I can tell you that the Christian community. Always considered this prophecy to be authentic. Jude was the half brother of Jesus. And I'm quite confident. That this is information that he came by. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said behold the Lord cometh. With ten thousands of his saints. And what is he coming for? To execute judgment upon all. He comes to reprove the world. Of their ungodly deeds. He brings judgment. Then we just go a little bit further in in Genesis and we see the anticipation of Christ's return in another passage. This is in Genesis chapter 49 and this one is called the scepter of Shiloh, the prophecy of the scepter of Shiloh. Genesis 49 verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. This is a prophecy that comes at the end of Jacob's life. This is when he blessed his sons. And it tells us that the kings of Israel would come from the tribe of Judah. Scepter is mentioned because that represents ruling authority. It's the ancestry of Christ from Judah through the lineage of David. And so the earthly right of kingship comes to Jesus Christ because of his descent from David. Now, you notice that this is a prophecy that's not about the first advent. It says the scepter of Shiloh. Now, that's that, that word Shiloh, that's very obscure in meaning, but almost all agree that it's a word that has something to do with peace. Later in Isaiah's prophecy of Messiah's government, he said he is the prince of peace. And so we ask the question, when is Jesus the prince of peace? Well, there was no peace in his lifetime. He was crucified. He brought no governmental peace to To the Jews or to the world, He comes with peace in the second advent. He will establish a kingdom of peace across the entire world so that when King Jesus reigns, all wars will stop. He's in control of all adversity, ruling with a rod of iron. He says nothing is going to hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. Later we're going to talk about that peace when we come to the characteristics of the kingdom. Now we've noted, that the return of Christ is prophesied to be violent. It starts violently. We see it many times in Old Testament Scripture. And there isn't a more pointed reference to this than in Revelation, uh, to what happens in Revelation 19 and the return of Christ than we find in Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah says that his return is a time of fury and fighting. So that's our next prophecy. Number four, the prophecy of fury and fighting. I'll turn your Bibles to Isaiah 63. We'll look at this scripture together. You might mark it in your Bible and remind yourself later how that Old Testament and New Testaments work together perfectly to give us the whole picture of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 63 in verse number one, uh, this is what you might call a question and answer time. Isaiah 63 verse one. Here's the question. First question. Who is this? That cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Answer, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to say. Question, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Answer, I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me. For I would tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart. And the year of my redeemed has come. And I looked and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me. And my fury it upheld me. And I would tread down the people in mine anger. And make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. Isaiah 63 is a reference to the carnage at Armageddon. You'll notice the language here. It speaks of bloodshed, and that's likened to juice that's squeezed out of grapes in a wine press. That's a very familiar image to us who live around this part of California. The wine press, uh, squeezing out the juice of the grapes. So like putting grapes into a vat, stomping. The grapes to bring out the juice. That's how God will gather the nations to the place where he'll trample them in his fury. Now, folks, that's brutal. I mean, think about that. This, this is a brutal scene. It's beyond what you think about Christ when he came the first time. Now, as in Revelation 19, it says the blood splatters his garments... Like a badge of honor and victory, he shows his almighty power over all the kings of the earth. This is not the meek and lowly Jesus that you're used to seeing in that little baby that came in the manger at Bethlehem. This is not him. He came in like a lamb. But now this lamb has become the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he intends to crush Satan's head, all his followers. He comes to subdue and to subject And so his return is filled with fury and fighting. And the Bible just says, this is a great and terrible day. It's a great and terrible day for the world. The saints will laud his coming, while those who reject him, the sinners, will loathe and lament his coming. Before there's peace, there must be war, brutally hard war. Revelation 19.15 says that Christ will smite the nations. Now, if you still got your finger in chapter 19... Flip back there to verses 17 and 18, where he says, John sees this. He says, I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, small and great. Many times the Old Testament describes this scene. While you're there, turn over in your Bible. I mean, go to the Old Testament. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 39 and here's another typical prophecy. We read this a few weeks ago. We'll read it again to finish our thoughts today. Remember, we're emphasizing that Christ's return is a great and terrible event. And Ezekiel also describes this very same carnage that John saw in Revelation 19. In the 17th verse of Ezekiel Ezekiel 39, "...and thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood." Ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty, and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, and bullocks, of all them fatlings of Bashan. And ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken, of my sacrifice which I have sacrificed for you. Thus ye shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men, with all men of war, saith the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them, so the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. At Christmas time, you'll often hear choirs sing Handel's Messiah. Most of you are familiar with the Hallelujah Chorus, a part of Handel's Messiah. Christmas might not really be appropriate for it because Handel's eschatology was a little mixed up. He was influenced by Reformation eschatology about the kingdom. And so his masterpiece that, that he wrote really reflects more the second advent of Christ than it does the first. Handel, in his great oratorio, quoted scripture. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And though Handel quoted multitudes of scriptures in all three parts of that oratorio, he didn't include the horrible bloodshed, the means by which Christ will crush Satan and his enemies. Now, that's not, that's not a criticism of Handel because heaven knows we could use more composers that know something about the Bible. But my point is that as glorious as this kingdom will be and as sweet as it will be for Christians, it will not come without severe judgment. You shouldn't look for it, you shouldn't hope for it, if you don't know Christ as your Savior. You remember when Jesus prayed in that model prayer, he said, Thy kingdom come. He taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. How many people that are lost, repeat that that prayer of Jesus in churches every week, Thy kingdom come. No, folks, you don't want the kingdom of Christ to come if you're not a believer in him. That's the last thing that you want to happen. If you're unprepared for the kingdom, you'll not escape. Vengeance, wrath, and bloodshed are on you. Romans 2 says, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. This message sounds like very bad news, doesn't it? Everything I've told you is horrible. It's bad. I said, you, you, you don't normally hear a sermon on a Sunday morning about these kinds of things. But these are the kinds of things that Paul and, preached, Paul and Peter preached to their listeners. Judgment is coming. And you need to repent because judgment is coming. Did you miss the point of today's message? What's it about? Well, first, it's about the power and the might of the king and the hope of those that trust in him. There's great hope trusting in Christ. But secondly, it shows that unbelievers, it shows the unbeliever that God is not messing with you. God's not going to mess with you. God doesn't have a wonderful plan for your life. He has a highly destructive plan for your life. We don't make any promises indiscriminately that things will work out for you, that things will go well with you. We only know this, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you have a much different plan. We don't promise. God promises. Both Peter and Paul told people in their gospel messages, judgment is coming. That's the plan. So I suggest you get out of the way of that plan. And you trust Jesus Christ today. How do you get out of it? Repent of your sins. Put your faith in him. Put all your hope and confidence in Christ. He will save you from your sins and you will be delivered from the wrath to come. Then you can pray with all the might that 's in you, thy kingdom come let 's pray, Heavenly Father, we come to you now, we pray those very words. Your kingdom come. We pray, Lord, that the righteous government of Jesus Christ would come to this world. All of our troubles then are over. those that trust in Christ, the most, hap- the happiest, the glorious time that the world will ever see is when Jesus Christ sits on the throne in Jerusalem and rules the entire world in perfect peace. But as we've just said, there is no peace and safety to those who are unbelievers. As much as is preached in pulpits today that everything is fine, everything is okay, God, God has this wonderful plan for your life, your best life now can be had, all that nonsense... The Word of God says nothing like that. We don't find a word of that in Scripture. God's wrath is on the unbeliever. We must preach that. And we must preach the glorious salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. That despite the the sin that's in our heart. Despite the inherent depravity. Despite our will to go away from God at every turn. Despite that we live our lives daily outside Of the righteousness of Christ. Yet the Bible says. That while we were yet sinners. He died for us. We thank you for that Lord. That's the greatest thing. That can happen to any person. To realize. That Christ Jesus. Is the Savior. And all that it takes. To have him as Savior. Is to repent of our sins. And believe the gospel. Help us to do that today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.
0: dot